0: Welcome to the hell has an exit podcast with host Teddy Tarantino new episodes every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to subscribe.
1: All right. Welcome to hell has an exit. Uh, This is a show that mainly talks about recovering addicts. We do anyone who has a survivor story, anyone who has a story about changing their life. If you guys are listening and you want to help out the podcast, like and subscribe. If you're on Apple Podcasts, leave a review. And if you got family and friends, send them the link. Try to get as many people to listen. And um, today we got Paul. What's up, Paul? How are you? I'm good, Brian. How are you? I'm good. So you're my co-chair for Service Commitment for a
0: long time. Yes. You still do it? Yes, I still do it. I actually want uh-huh. to start off with, with that story. Do you remember uh-huh. the first time we met? Mm-mm. Okay, so the first time we met, brief story, uh, we were at a, at a meeting, and, and Brian was speaking. You mm. were speaking. And I remember I raised my hand afterwards and said something to you. And Mm -hmm. I wasn't aware that you were my co-chair at the time. Mm. We had a text relationship. Yeah, we only texted, but we didn't know we were co-chairs. So we didn't know what each other looked like. And then afterwards, I came over to you after the meeting, and I said, oh, I liked what you said, whatever. And you you, you said the the same thing Uh to me. And you said something like, I was wondering what this old guy was gonna have to say to me mm-hmm. that would be relevant, and then I said I was wondering what this kid was gonna <laughs> say to me that would be relevant. That just kind of shows, you know, kind of the irony of that.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I missed that commitment. I did that commitment for like seven, eight years, and then I did like a prison, and then I did like a detox, and I went back there. I think for like another three or four. So that yeah. that place is a special how long you been doing it for i've been doing that commitment for seven or eight years wow yeah man it's it's incredible um i always tell people like doing that type of service work where you go into treatment centers and uh carry the message and bring a speaker there's like nothing there's no better feeling there's so many times in my life where i was up and down and you know, struggling with work or a relationship, and like that was this one thing that I did every other Monday for years, where mm-hmm. like I knew that I was going into the facility, and um, it's awesome. I, I gotta get back, I gotta get another commitment.
0: And there's a few parts to that. There's a part where you go in and, mm-hmm. you know, bring the speaker or speak whatever. Then there's the next part where you're out in the community three months later, mm-hmm. a year later, two years later, and somebody's, hey, I remember you. Mm-hmm and you get the occasional you said something Mm -hmm. that turned my life around and you have like no idea what you Mm -hmm. said, you know?
1: Yeah, there's times where I've been at a meeting and 20 kids would get out of a car and be like, you're the reason why we came here. You told us this was your home group. So it's like, it's cool because it's like, there's a lot of things in life that you could do to help people, but this is like tangible evidence Mm -hmm. of the impact you have. And a lot of it's long-term because you'll see someone years later who's like, oh, you did this commitment. You know, even even until today, there are people like, oh, dude, that's the dude that came in. You know, especially the jails. The jails are cool. Yeah. So where are you from, Paul?
0: So I'm from Lower East Side of Manhattan, a place called Grand Street, mm-hmm. and it was it was kind of like a middle class, working class, middle class Jewish neighborhood, and this was prime New York melting pot. So my neighborhood was Jew, you know, mostly Jewish families lived in my buildings each building had a few thousand people in it you know big buildings with the black ghetto on the same block Mm -hmm. the puerto rican hood across the street chinatown and little italy on the borders so it was a multi-racial multicultural Mm
1: -hmm. melting pot yeah what was uh growing up like what was uh like was it dysfunctional from the start did it get dysfunctional
0: Good question. <laughs> um, f- from the outside, and I suppose from the inside, in a way, it was kind of normal-ish, functional. Mm-hmm. You know, mom and dad were married. You know, they're whole, you know, like whatever, for fifty years, sixty years. Um, they owned a clothing store. So it was a mom and pop shop. Mom and pop worked seven days a week. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of a latchkey kid, and my older brother was sort of my surrogate parent now i say this a lot when i speak at meetings sometimes or whatever and i kind of felt like everybody else seemed to get the instruction book on how to live life and i didn't get a copy Mm. and if i had i wouldn't have read it anyway and so there was always this feeling of feeling like i didn't fit in feeling different maybe part of it was the neighborhood part of it was I was going to a religious Jewish school, and we weren't orthodox mm. and so I was a fraud from early on. I kind of pretended that I was so there was this whole little turmoil inside that was there
1: what um what era is this like what years are this
0: the sixties baby the 60s. sex drugs and rock and roll there you go. What was the sixties like? Our sixties were great, so coming from that you know, from feeling that way and not mm-hmm. fitting in. Literally, the Beatles hit the scene, like Beatles' Ed Sullivan mm-hmm. show, you know? And and I was hooked, you know? You were into music? Yeah, I was into music. I played guitar, not that great, you know? <laughs> but we played guitar, I had my little garage band with my friends, and the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of the 60s and into the 70s, just took over, you know? Yeah, it's like sometimes... um
1: like, my therapist is probably, like, your age. And, like, a lot of times we're talking about, like, sex positivity and all this stuff. And, like, you know, nowadays with like, OnlyFans and all this stuff. And, like, when I talked to my therapist, he was, like, oh, people think it's crazy now? It was crazy back because he's from New York, too. He right. was, like, you know, there was things that went on in the middle of the street that just would – you would put someone in jail for 50 years. So he was just, like – I think a lot of times uh, people have this idea, like, the world is getting crazier and crazier. But I think um, – really just because we get to see it through social media, but I would imagine the sixties were also pretty pretty insane.
0: They were and it's interesting not to get off on this tangent. I'm good one for tangents. Mm-hmm. The whole kind of social polarization that's going on now in our mm-hmm. society mirrors in a lot of ways what went on then different issues different whatever oh yeah there was
1: very like uh i didn't really i didn't think yeah because it was very like politically polarized
0: total opposites politically polarized culturally polarized you know parents versus kids generation gap was a big buzzword then and i fell into that as well i fell into that sense of feeling alienated yeah
1: because i guess like your parents were like in the 40s right
0: So my parents, uh, that's another important part of the backstory. Mm -hmm. So my parents came to America after World War II. They were in, they weren't technically Holocaust survivors. They weren't in concentration camps. But my dad fought in the Mm -hmm. Czechoslovakian army in Russia. My mom was in a ghetto, not in uh, in a concentration camp, but close enough. And so they came from that background. So So they probably came
1: from like a super serious escaping horrors type of lifestyle to making it in America to their kids just wanting to listen to the Beatles and do acid. <laughs> right, right, right. That's interesting. That's interesting to think about because oftentimes when I think about the 60s, I don't think about like what the parents of kids growing up in the 60s were probably going through then.
0: Yeah, they were scratching their heads. They, they, they didn't get it. Mm. They just didn't get
1: it. I guess now that's how parents feel with TikTok.
0: <laughs> right, right. Right. <laughs>
1: Oh wow, that's interesting. Yeah, because sometimes I watch podcasts and they'll be like, "Oh, these kids with TikTok brain—they can't keep a sentence. They're all out of their mind." I would imagine in the '60s, they were like, "Oh, these uh, tree hugging hippies with their long, long hair. hair
0: yeah, you know, cut your hair, you look like a girl. All that kind wow. of stuff." You know,
1: that's interesting. Um, what else was going on, like socially then? Like with you? Like, did you have a lot of friends? Were you like using already?
0: Okay, so I started using when I was. 13 you know there was and before i first used we hit me and my little hippie friends or for, mm-hmm. future hippie friends
1: so I, wait, it was like hippies and then like rock and rollers right
0: well okay, hippies and greasers
1: okay hippies and greasers and so what were the greasers listening to
0: so the greasers were listening like leather
1: jacket outsider type
0: leather jacket uh, listening more to doo-wop kind of music uh-huh. um and at that time, pretty soon, it became alcohol versus drugs. Gotcha. Alcohol was the drug that grown-up, straight society did, mm-hmm. and innocent plant marijuana was victimized, just like we were all victims. You know, mm-hmm. we were all you know victims in our own minds of this oppressive culture. And so, you know, so, so that's what was going on. So, did I have a lot of friends? So I had my little clique of outcast friends. I I didn't feel like I fit in with them. I wasn't a jock, I wasn't whatever, you know. Mm. And so I had my little, you know, clique of outcast friends and that became the whole drug subculture.
1: Mm. What uh when did it turn for you like using hardcore to social using?
0: Okay, so I'll I'll give you that brief progression Mm -hmm. story.
1: You can tell your story like,
0: you know. And it was a kind of fast progression. Um, So, thirteen years old, went out to, you know, to get pot. We had a plan, and we found a guy, and Mm -hmm. you know, we, you know, we cop weed. Now, there were those of you that are out there that maybe smoke pot now. Mm In those days, it was a nickel bag, five dollars, <laughs> and me, me, and another guy split it, and we got eighteen joints. So it was eighteen joints for five dollars, and we what? were we were supposed to get twenty. So I was like, "Man, we only got eighteen. That's you know, mm-hmm. well, that's more than fifty cents each."
1: These must have been tiny joints. No, these are fat ones. A nickel bag of weed would get you eighteen joints. Eighteen
0: joints, yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Right. And so. And so we smoked them, mm-hmm. or we smoked a few. And I was the one who, after I was done with mine, because we each got however many we got, called my friends, "Hey, you got any left?" And with, I was pretty much smoking weeds every day, almost every day, you know, from from jump. Mm-hmm. And then from there. I I would make all these lines in my head, not on the mirror, that came later. Mm -hmm. I'd make all these lines in my head, like, okay, I'm going to smoke weed, but I'm not going to take pills. Okay, I'm going to take pills, but I'm not going to take those pills. Mm -hmm. Speed kills, I'm not going to take speed. That was like a big phrase back Mm -hmm. then. Okay, we're going to take some speed, but no acid, I don't want my chromosomes fucked up. (laughs) That was the thing they used to say back then, that acid will... Mess, mess up feeling. your chromosomes, yeah. You know, whatever, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so each line I made I crossed. And each time I just pushed the line further out. And so by I started at 13, by 16, 17, I was using every day whatever, you know, pills and pot and whatever I could get my hands on. So then comes the great turning point. Okay, so back then in the 60s, um, President Nixon had, I think what's was called Operation Intercept, and the goal was to intercept the pot coming in from Mexico, and they also put poison on the pot, paraquat pot, they mm-hmm. used to call it. They would like spray the fields, whatever. So it was hard to get weed in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And so I went out, one night to get some with uh big lou a guy from the hood Mm -hmm. and it's like 11 o'clock midnight and we're looking around there's nothing there there's nothing there and he goes over to one guy big lou is older guy i was Mm -hmm. like 16 or so and he was like 19 20 you Mm -hmm. know and he goes over to one guy comes back no he doesn't have anything goes over another guy no nothing it goes over to a third guy, and he's talking a little longer than he was speaking to the other guys. Mm-hmm. And comes back and says, "No, he doesn't have anything." Spidey senses were up. I said, "Wait, what? What does he have? Oh, well, he has something. You, you know, you, you're not interested. What does he have? Heroin." Okay. Now that was one of the big lines, obviously that you don't cross. Wow. And. I said, sure. And they were two dollar bags back then, two dollars for a bag of heroin. Crazy. Three for five. Crazy. Three for five. And so I went home, snorted half a bag, half a two-dollar bag, so a dollars mm-hmm. worth. And <laughs> a dollars worth of heroin. <laughs> a That's worth of heroin. Crazy. <laughs> and was totally stoned. And that was it. It was like Did you enjoy it? I loved it. Because a lot
1: of times when people do opiates for the first time, they get nauseous. Yeah, I, that that kept, wasn't my story. I loved, loved it from
0: it. the first feeling 16 yeah, yeah, 16 wow. yeah something like that and um started getting a habit didn't initially didn't realize i have a ha- had a habit so i got a story for that one too i got a lot of stories i'm old that's here that's here <laughs> and so this story is so we're in that same park as a matter of fact mm-hmm. uh it's a saturday afternoon and me and my little friends were going to cop some weed and already doing heroin, you know. We had the heroin, we went to get some weed in the park. And as we're leaving the park, we see a cop at one of the entrances. And he's like looking at us, we're looking at him, it's a park in the hood, we're white boys, we don't (laughs) belong there, you know. And so a couple of us go the other way, like he's at this entrance, we're going the other entrance. For some brilliant reason, I didn't want to look suspicious, so I was going to walk by him. So I walked by him. We got arrested, and so I end up in jail. My first, my first trip to jail. What they
1: arrest you for? Uh, being white.
0: They, I, the, I think it was loitering with the intent to buy, sell, or use narcotics or dangerous drugs. It's crazy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They didn't, they didn't find the pot on us, and so it was. I was it, loitering with the intent. Mm-hmm. That was a thing back. Then. I don't know if they're allowed to do that now, mm-hmm. but that was a thing back then, and so. I'm in jail for twenty four, forty eight hours, whatever it is, and I'm feeling sick. And I get out of jail, and I talk to to, to my friend that escaped, one of the guys mm-hmm. that ran away. And you know, I'm telling him like tales of what it's like being in jail, you know. And um, and I mentioned that I had I caught a jail cold. Mm-hmm. And he said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, you know, I I, I described the withdrawal symptoms, you know." I'm, My nose is running. I feel achy all over. I'm going to the bathroom all the time. I can't sit still. It's a jail cold. And he says, no, we have heroin habits. You're going through withdrawal. (laughs) And so, of course, my response was, let's get some heroin to find out. Let's put this to the test. And I put it to the test. And sure enough, my Mm -hmm. my jail cold miraculously went away. Mm -hmm. And then that began basically an era of 20 years of of doing heroin and, and on heroin heroin on methadone programs cocaine and just the whole drug story mm-hmm. the, whole, the whole drug story um within that my parents tried to help me as best they could you know people talk about medicine religion and psychiatry and about how those things may or may not help, and they tried all that Mm-hmm. Now, I ended up being a very insightful drug addict. <laughs> I learned a lot about myself in the process of going to a shrink, but that didn't stop me from using. didn't mm. stop me from using. They sent me off to Israel, you know what we call a geographic cure mm. get out of you know, get out of town, maybe you'll find religion, meet a nice Jewish girl, whatever you know some kind of find some kind of normalcy, and none of those things helped hmm. And so that what was, was
1: Israel like? huh? What was Israel like? And how long did you stay there? Like, what happened I was in, there?
0: I, I went twice. We went for two geographic cures, mm-hmm. one in like 1970 ish or something, 72, mm-hmm. and then went back again in 1978. Two different stories. So, the first story
1: Was it like at a rehab or it was just like get no, out of it? No,
0: no, no. Just get out of it. You know, went to a kibbutz. What a kibbutz is, for those of you that don't know, a kibbutz is like a commune. Mm-hmm. So, a kibbutz, the first one I was on was about 300 people and they had like an orchard and they had. A plastics factory and or something like that, and you worked there mm-hmm. for a number of hours a day mm-hmm. and got free room and board and that was it and you Did hung out it you was a bunch a bunch of tourists, <laughs> a bunch of like you know Russians and English people people from all over the world because volunteers at us, would just be on the kibbutz mm-hmm. volunteering and then there'd be the the kibbutzniks they were called that lived on the kibbutz.
1: Did you find heroin there?
0: I found opium I didn't find heroin.
1: Opium, okay.
0: But it wasn't hard to find the opium. Uh-huh. Um,
1: was it similar? Is it similar?
0: Yeah, yeah, it was similar.
1: Wow, really? I always wonder like, how, how similar to heroin it was like. Pretty similar. It's almost like smoking heroin?
0: Well, I, well the smoking... The, and you
1: withdraw too, just like... Yeah, yeah, so
0: the smoking opium didn't come until later. That mm. came the second trip when I went to India. We'll get to that story in a minute.
1: Oh, you went to India? Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> it's like a... Uh, Every time I think about stuff like this, I only think about like Midnight Express.
0: It was, co- well, I have a Midnight Express-like okay. chapter in my story, too. Okay. Might as well get to that. We got mm-hmm. some We got some stories. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, when I was in Israel, first hash was easy to get, Hashish, you know. Mm-hmm. That, that was very easy to get. Okay, I was all over the place. Then I forgot exactly how I found out, but I found out really quick that you could buy coding pills over the okay. counter just go and get coding pills and so i got the coding pills Then in the old city of jerusalem in the arab section was where you got the best hashish and pretty soon i found out that you can get opium there now i didn't try smoking it i immediately i had read junkie by william burroughs i was already okay. I, I was already you know dedicated to the lifestyle mm-hmm. you know and i knew that you could shoot opium wow and so i i didn't know you could do that yeah and it's like crushed it up and this tarry thing and and shot it and there we go now i'm like full blown mm-hmm. you know full-blown addict in in israel running around some strange country hmm And so the Midnight Express part of that story, story, there's actually two Midnight Express Mm -hmm. parts of that story. So the Midnight Express part of that story was, one night me and this guy Louis from Canada were on the kibbutz drunk, (laughs) make a long story short, we broke into the office there, vandalized it, stole some money, they knew it was us, however they (laughs) knew it was us, and we get arrested, Mm -hmm. and I end up in jail in Israel. And so that's Midnight Express. I was, I was there for like 10 days in the, in the was jail. Was the jail, jail nice? That's an interesting story, too. Different than American jail. Mm-hmm. So it was about a room kind of the size of this with about 10, 12 people mm-hmm. on the floor, on like mats, if they mm-hmm. if you even had a mat or on newspaper or whatever. And everyone was really nice. <laughs> everyone kind of got along. It was a very collegial kind of atmosphere. But and we were getting high in jail every day, but here, here was here was how they did that. Somehow or other, I'm not sure how this arrangement worked out, somebody would bite their arm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Or you, I would actually, actually ask you to bite my arm. Okay. And then there'd be this big nasty welt, mm-hmm. and I would say, Guard, I fell or whatever, mm-hmm. and the guard would take would take me out, take the person out. Uh-huh. And take him to the hospital. He would come back from the hospital bandaged More with a, how she, she wrapped in the bandage gotcha. and pills enough to last us a few days mm-hmm. once the next guy's turn to get his arm armpits. Mm-hmm. And then That's eventually, I, I didn't realize that, that I had signed you, up for that. Did you
1: bite anyone's arm?
0: No, I didn't buy anybody's arm. I realized I that I <laughs> signed up for that because then they told me it was my turn. I mm-hmm. my turn for what? It was my turn to get my arm bit. But somebody else volunteered to go in my in my place mm-hmm. because you get the extra perk of getting whatever painkillers they if give you. Do you there. It first. So gotcha. he was happy to take my place. Mm-hmm. And so that's that that's that Midnight Express. That's interesting.
1: Story. Um what was it like um for like those twenty years? Like what happened in your life when you were
0: using? Okay, so for twenty years, it was in and out of detoxes, and they didn't really have detoxes much back then. So in and out of like a psych hospital or some kind of medical facility for a week, in and out of methadone programs. I never really worked Mm -hmm. per se. My dad. like
1: how did you support your habit? Um, That's
0: a good. I don't know. (laughs) I I supported my habit. Stealing prescriptions, breaking into people's mailboxes, um borrowing from one person to pay another, petty drug dealer buy mm-hmm. a couple ounces of weed and break it down and sell it, or get pills from this one, sell mm-hmm. it to that one. Just kind of somehow manage to keep it going, mm-hmm. just keep on the treadmill, you know?
1: Did you ever think about like really getting clean? Like, was there a lot of times where you were like giving an honest try to? totally be clean
0: the idea of actually not using drugs Mm -hmm. didn't enter my mind wow well it wasn't even an option Mm -hmm. the idea and and, uh, i guess we can fast forward that and maybe come back around to another story Mm -hmm. or two the idea was to find a way to use successfully use a little less
1: use a little more of this less of that right
0: you know and so the main goal in my mind the, 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 the big problem was having a habit, being, going through withdrawal. And so if I could find a way to use drugs and not go through withdrawal, that would be fine. That, mm-hmm. that was the goal. And for, for anybody out out there that's done cocaine, so I figured, okay, cocaine would be a way to, 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 to make things more manageable, more under control. But mm-hmm. anybody that's done it knows that that gets even crazier than the opioids. Mm-hmm. So I was chasing the cocaine and doing all that kind of thing. It was just kind of a merry-go-round of one drug mm-hmm. after another.
1: Were you snorting it or shooting it?
0: I, I was shooting it. Everything. You know, in the beginning, started snorting it, yeah. but then quickly shooting it, mm-hmm. which is even crazier.
1: Yeah. Um, when did you find out about the program? Do you know anyone in the program?
0: Okay. So here's how I found out about the program. So it's 1982,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and... My parents are sending me to a shrink again. And I'm kind of half ass holding it together. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my brother is an m d and he owned like a, we, we were kind of involved. We kind of owned like a medical clinic kind of place, and I was the administrator, whatever I'd go in and out. I kind of kept the books a little mm-hmm. bit. I managed to like subsist somewhat. I was on the methadone program. Um, so I was kind of like half assed holding it together,, mm-hmm. and then I started shooting Coke again, and shit got crazy again. Mm. Okay. I always
1: wanted to do a like a tv show where they get like a whole bunch of people from the Methadone clinic and just follow them around <laughs> uh when I was using, I saw this uh t v show called like Methadonians uh-huh, and that's what they did. It was like seven people on methadone, and they would just like follow their lives and i remember being on opiates and being like that looks like really good like they look like they're like killing it but um yeah anyway sorry to interrupt anyway, yeah
0: so um so the, the shrink that i'm seeing tells me about that he heard this thing he heard about this thing called narcotics anonymous that might <laughs> help me But in New York in those days, in the early 80s, they had the Rockefeller Laws, and NA wasn't really a thing. We weren't Mm -hmm. allowed to congregate. It was was a whole different thing. So Mm -hmm. he heard about this 12-step program and thought that it would be a good idea for me. But it really wasn't around, Mm -hmm. so I guess, you know, fine, whatever. So now I'm in a psych hospital in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Quick little story with that. (laughs) Got a lot of stories. Mm -hmm. So So I'm... the shrink that i'm seeing wrote the chapter in the textbook of medicine that every doctor read hmm. so uh, on um on addiction so mm-hmm. he was the expert
1: oh, on addiction Wow. on
0: addiction didn't know what the fuck to do with me mm-hmm. <laughs> know it. so long story short they send me to the psych hospital in north carolina to like figure out what's wrong with me you know mm-hmm. and um in the psych hospital they say hey there's going to be a meeting and they pointed out, you know, there's maybe 300 people in the hospitals, maybe eight, 10 addicts that they called to the meeting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so that was my first introduction. And as soon as I heard the people, you know, the speakers speak, the H&I speaker, just like, I, the, you know, just like I bring a meeting into a facility now. I heard somebody brought a meeting into a facility right then. And even though there was big differences in our backgrounds, this is North Carolina, a very big difference, there was this immediate sense of identification. But I wasn't buying into the whole idea of total abstinence. Mm-hmm. I wasn't buying into the idea that I can't you know, just say no. You know, that, that just seemed crazy to me. And so that began a period of six years of going to different 12-step fellowships, try, once again trying to figure out the magic mm-hmm formula for how to use without ending up in places and i kept ending up in places
1: did you like believe in god at all would you pray or anything
0: no i didn't believe in god well i'll 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 get to that so i i grew up you know with an orthodox jewish Mm -hmm. traditional background and i tried to believe in god i did a few different um stints of like you know religion and praying and I kind of got a little bit more into it on a philosophical level rather Mm -hmm. than really believing in that external deity that's the puppet master that makes things happen. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really believe in God. And that was another thing that Turned you off. Put me off. It was like, Mm -hmm. you know, God's gonna make me gonna hit like hit me with a magic wand and Mm -hmm. I'm gonna be fine. Give me a break, you know. You know, we tried having like the the Hasidim, the guys with the with the hats mm-hmm. and the long beards. Mm-hmm. You know, like pray for me, whatever. Mm-hmm. So you know that just you know sounded real hokey. And <laughs> we, maybe we can get into that a little bit later because my spiritual path, quote unquote, mm-hmm. is very different than the typical person in a twelve step program. I still don't subscribe to the a- Abrahamic Judeo Christian concept of mm-hmm. uh, of of a God. Um, and I noticed you have a book. I was looking at your books before a book. Oh yeah, a book uh, called Refuge Recovery. Yeah, yeah. Which I give it a big. It's okay. I
1: haven't. I actually haven't read it. Um, but um, I know people who like refuge meetings. I've never been to a refuge meeting in my life, but I know I know people that go.
0: So Refuge Recovery folks mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is a. Recovery based program for um, addicts. Um, it's based right. on Buddhism. Mm. Now, it kind of twists and distorts a lot of Buddhist stuff, mm-hmm. where it's where it's kind of watered down Buddhism, and watered down recovery. I suppose. I mean, people stay clean doing it, whatever. So it's got value. Mm-hmm. By the time I, when I first met Refuge Recovery. I had been exploring different Eastern spiritual mm-hmm. you know, paths, whatever. And so, okay, that was interesting. I hadn't really explored Buddhism much at that time. More Taoism and more just general mindfulness stuff. And so, okay, that was interesting, and I liked it. But then I also started reading some other Buddhist stuff. And by the time I actually went to a refuge recovery meeting, I had gotten, you know to a place where I saw that there was a lot missing in it in, in what, in the way they presented it. Mm-hmm. But it's a very good introductory kind of thing. So, so there I am going to these meetings mm-hmm. and finally I end up in a detox again. For those of you that are my age <laughs> might remember Bernstein, the detox in New York city uh, on 15 streets i end up in bernstein in a detox and the h and i people the people bring in the meeting again Mm -hmm. they're always bringing the meetings in and for whatever reason when the speaker spoke i was i was able to feel something different i got that sense of hope he said something that was very cliche Try this way of life for 90 days, your mm-hmm. misery is refundable. I'd probably heard that a thousand times before. But for every reason, I got this little vignette in my head, this little movie of all the times I'd been wherever it had been, you know, a detox, a therapeutic community, or, okay, I'm going to work now for a while or whatever. Always having a master plan of how it's going to be different this time and always ending up back in a place. Mm-hmm. And I kind of made a decision then that, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. What do I got to lose? And that was the beginning of the more serious part of this journey.
1: Interesting. When did you, Um, is that when you got serious about recovery?
0: That's when I got serious about recovery.
1: That's, you stayed clean since then? No. Okay.
0: Okay, so here we go. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now it's 1988. I'm, I'm clean. So just brief autobiography of that was clean for 11 years
1: wow i didn't know that
0: uh 88 to 99 relapsed mm-hmm. then go came back for six years again was clean again relapsed and now i'm back 14 years
1: wow it's crazy to get double digits twice
0: Yeah, right so it's, it's double double digits so that's kind of wow. unusual you know uh yeah yeah
1: what uh what was the first 11 years
0: like okay so the first 11 years were kind of learning how to live life. You know, I had been living life on an mm-hmm. animal level kind of. What
1: What was it about the 12-step program that worked?
0: Good question. Okay, so... And I only
1: share this on the podcast so much because there's so many podcasts and stuff out there like bashing 12-step okay. programs and there's not a lot of like pros 12-step program podcasts or... I don't know. A lot of times, when it's like recovering addicts talking on like a public thing, it's more of like they did it on their own, which I'm not bashing. Mm -hmm. But you know, the program works, and there's obviously hundreds of people, uh, thousands and thousands of people that have been clean, and owe it all to that program.
0: Okay, and I can, I can give you some really concrete examples of, of how that works. First of all. what I might call having a support system. I had people that weren't using drugs that I could learn to socialize with. You know, I remember early on going to meetings and just going out to eat after the meeting with a bunch of guys and girls whatever mm-hmm. and learning how to talk and laugh and kind of have people to hang out with. Oh, you know, I found a guy that played guitar. We had a little band. We won third place in the talent show, you mm-hmm. know, all, 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 all that kind of stuff. Um, So a social support system, which any psychology book or whatever it says you need to have a support system mm-hmm. so a social support system another thing that was attractive about the 12-step program was whether you whether one knows it or not when you go into a 12-step program there's cognitive restructuring going on i'm changing the way i'm thinking mm-hmm. i'm changing the way i look at the world i'm changing the way You know, simple little things, you know, that I might tell myself about the world in general or about people, you know, it's a dog-eat-dog world or Mm -hmm. whatever, somehow gets replaced with the idea of helping people or kindness or those kinds of ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, simple or simple things like having an urge to use and you hear something, oh, you don't have to use even if you want to. Oh my God! You Mm -hmm. mean just because I have an impulse, I don't have to give into it? Mm -hmm. And all these relatively simple things, when piled together, repeated over and over again, just kind of Mm -hmm. change—you know—change my my perspective, the way I think, the way my value system, all that stuff begins to shift slowly, Mm -hmm. slowly over a period of time. It's not a all all at once thing. So, I remember I can give you a little incident there where it kind of crystallized for me, that part of it. So with that, the self-concept, my idea of who I am shifted. My self-concept was, you know, whatever. I'm no good. I'm a a junkie. You know, whatever it is, I'm never going to amount to anything. I don't know how to really live in society. That was kind of who I believed I was. So then after I got clean, I started doing some good stuff. I ended up eventually, you know, working in the field, you know, and uh, we'll get to that part of the story. I ended up like doing some things and that kind of shifted my self-concept. I remember when I was going to pick up a a one-year anniversary token and uh, in that process, you know, like the week or two before, kind of Mm -hmm. like reflecting back and realizing that for the first 90 days, six months or whatever it was, that I felt like a thief who just happened to not be stealing, but I was mm-hmm. basically a thief, a liar who was forcing myself to tell the truth because, in the twelve step programs, honesty is supposedly you know mm-hmm. uh, indispensable. You, have, you know it's one of the key principles. So I grudgingly told the truth, didn't embellish those stories even though I wanted to, you know, and. And then I realized by the time I had that year, just a year, I didn't feel like that person anymore. I didn't feel like a thief who wasn't stealing. I didn't feel like a liar who was forcing himself to tell the truth. I didn't feel like a drain on society. I felt like I was contributing. And there was this whole shift in my perception of myself. I also realized somewhere in that process that I had been a closed feedback loop, a closed system. I could only tell myself what I knew. Mm -hmm. I could only give myself the solutions to whatever internal and external problems there were that I can come up with. No solutions usually ended up with me getting high or me doing something antisocial in the broad Mm -hmm. sense, you know, something that's kind of like not, wouldn't be considered like, oh, that's a wonderful thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I realized that part of the healing process in a 12-step program is getting that different perspective, getting a different way to put things together. Oh, so it's not just one and one equals two all the time. There's a different way to think. So there's that whole shift within the 12-step program. Um, since you asked about God before, and most people who um, even are somewhat familiar with 12-step programs mm-hmm. know that there's a spiritual God aspect to the program, mm-hmm. um, so uh, so I, for lack of a better word, wrestled with the God thing for a while. In the beginning, the first 11 years, I tried to convince myself that I believed in that traditional God that made things happen. So I would kind of look back at a coincidence or something and say, oh, that must have been God's hand or whatever kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I really didn't believe it. I would say it, people like to hear that shit, you know, Mm -hmm. so I would say it, you know, to people, but I really didn't quite believe it. But what I did pick up along the way was that there's principles Mm -hmm. embedded in the 12-step program that we learn, sometimes explicitly through, you know, somebody that's a mentor, or sometimes you just kind of hear about them. Mm -hmm. I start hearing about these principles, these values, and suddenly, I get a value system that's more about helping others. That's more about
1: giving than getting
0: more about giving than getting. I learned somehow that this whole addiction thing is about my Mm self-centeredness, whether it's self-centered. I want to feel good, whether it's self-centered. I want what I want when I want it. And I want it now, whether it's self-centered. Oh, I'm great. Whether it's self-centered, I'm a piece of shit. It's my whole thinking is wrapped up in me. My impulses, my desires, what you think of me, what I think mm-hmm. of me, what I'm going to get, what I didn't get, wrapped up in me, in my history of the past, wrapped up in my in my future projections of fantasies, all, all wrapped up in the self thing. And I came to find out over weeks, months, years, and decades mm-hmm. that that whole preoccupation with myself ends up being causing me the most problems yeah and that's kind of what these spiritual principles heal mm-hmm. that's kind of what learning to, to to live life based on spiritual principles is, is the antidote so to speak yeah
1: it's almost you can't use if you're living the principles you know right
0: right you can not right, yeah
1: um what so those eleven years what were they like
0: okay so the eleven years let's get to the eleven years. So the first 11 years was about rebuilding my life. Mm-hmm. And so those first 11 years, um, first I, you know, I was very involved in, in doing like program-related service work mm-hmm. and starting meetings and that kind of thing. I was beginning to work in the field as a tech, whatever. Mm-hmm. They didn't call it a tech back then. But, you know, I was beginning to mm-hmm. work in the field. Went back to school I had been a psych major before I dropped out of school mm-hmm. in the 70s, or whatever it was. Like a nice Jewish boy, I was going to be a doctor. <laughs> I was a pre-med, you know, and then I dropped out of, you know, I dropped out of school. What and
1: did I- your parents think about the 12-step program? Were they, like, a fan of anything as long as you were getting clean? or they... they were a
0: fan of anything as long as I was getting clean, but they kind of thought it was a little nutty.
1: They thought it was hokey, huh? Yeah,
0: yeah they thought it was hokey, but, like, fine. If you... <laughs> Eventually, when they saw it work, they were like, good. Go to the meeting. Yeah, keep like, going to the good. meetings, you know, yeah. They were happy that something was working. What was
1: society's view in, about recovery in those times? Like, was were, were meetings like... I mean, like, what were meetings like... Back then, were they the same as they are now? Is-
0: they're kind of the same. I mean, there's sometimes people kind of tend to over dramatize the difference between mm-hmm. what it was like then and what it's like now. Yeah, they were a little raw, more raw. Mm-hmm. There was a little more um, rough and tumble kind mm-hmm. of, you know.
1: Get clean or die. You know, get yeah, get
0: clean or die. Or you know, then they never said that to me. because you know more just like this is seriously you have you have to work this well you know you're gonna die this thing kills people mm-hmm. whatever there was it was more of like a almost scared straight kind of Vibe. attitude okay but in a in a loving kind of way, you mm-hmm. know in a gruff kind of way, we were all kind of rough and tumble mm-hmm. you know not that many people at that time kind of came in having stuff and you know mm-hmm. You know having their yeah. Arm. So,
1: I would imagine that back then when people got to the rooms, they were like at the total, total bottom, yeah, yeah. Was... Now, people come in, like you know, it's so known that people are coming in a lot sooner without being, you know, homeless. Not everyone is like homeless and on the verge of death, right? right Maybe right. spiritually, you know,
0: right? So, the just the external bottom was a lot lower than mm-hmm. so the average person was kind of really starting from ground zero, and somebody that had been around for five years or so and had a car and a job mm-hmm. and was like living a productive normal life was like, Wow, God, you can mm-hmm. do that, holy mm-hmm. shit and so I went back to school and decided to be a to, to go back to school and become a psychologist, so mm-hmm. I went back to school and got my doctorate in psychology Wow,
1: you have a doctorate I yeah have know a doctorate that. in that's psychology. crazy yeah. wow
0: and okay and I, I, so I you're wanna, a doctor Paul. Yeah, I'm doctor Paul. Right.
1: Wow, that's crazy. And,
0: and I, I want to highlight that for for a reason. Mm-hmm. That yeah, Brian, you... who kind who kind of knows me, mm-hmm. you know, we don't hang out. You probably you probably can't tell, but mm-hmm. there's a little bit of an age difference, mm-hmm. so we don't hang out. But we know of each other. Yeah, you yeah. know, a recovering community doesn't know that, and that's kind of on purpose. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be known as. The doctor, the expert, mm-hmm. whatever. I'm just like everybody else. You know, we have another principle. We talk about anonymity. We're all the mm-hmm. same. Mm-hmm. We're all the same here. So it doesn't really matter what I know, what I didn't know. Now, that first time around, the first 11 years, I kind of wanted to make sure that you knew that, you know, I was going to school for my doctor. Gotcha. And I was a little smarter than you. Gotcha. You know, so there was like
1: know, some ego and arrogance. You know, a
0: little ego and arrogance that part of me was aware of. But I was able to lie to myself. See that honesty thing comes in a lot mm-hmm. of different flavors. I was able to lie to myself and and somehow make it okay to do that, even though I knew it was arrogance. And so mm-hmm. even though I knew that really that, that 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 wasn't, you know, something that I should talk about. You know, mm-hmm. that so I went back to school, got got the degree, was working in the field, and I came in pretty much after like I was around for a while, had Mm -hmm. a master plan. And the master plan was to go back to school, get a degree, meet a nice Jewish girl, get married and have kids and settle down and like be normal, quote Mm -hmm. unquote. And so the first 11 years was about pursuing a normal life.
1: Making up for lost times. Making
0: up for lost time, financial success, career, kids, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I achieved that. So after 11 years, I was literally married with two kids, a boy and a girl, a golden retriever, a minivan, and a house with a pool in a gated community. So I had arrived. I had achieved my goal. But somewhere along the way, I stopped going to to meetings. I stopped doing all the things Mm -hmm. that... People in recovery kind of do. Mm-hmm. Just like the people that kind of get clean on their own, whatever. Yeah,
1: so people always talk about like, don't leave before the miracle, which is basically like, hang in there, it gets better. But I always share about like, people leave after the miracle. Right. You know, it's like you got everything you need, and then you're like, all right, well, thanks, you know?
0: And that's exactly what happened. The miracle happened. I, I remember one of my favorite slogans back then was, don't leave before the miracle happens. Mm. And there was another one, the magic is real. So I would put them together. The magic is real. Because somehow, folks, this is a magic trick. I don't know exactly how it works. And I used to want to figure it out these days. I don't really have to. It doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. But it's like a magic trick. I go to these meetings. I listen to some people talk. I say some shit sometimes. <laughs> I read some stuff. I write some stuff. I talk to this guy who's my mentor. <laughs> I talk to other people in recovery. I practice these spiritual principles basically i'm a nice guy i'm not an asshole and i'm <laughs> trying to be kind and help people and my life changes it's like a magic trick how, mm-hmm. how does all that add up to that i don't know but it does mm-hmm. so the magic is real but don't leave before the miracle happens and i remember saying that and thinking yeah the magic is real how my life transformed itself and i used to say that don't leave before the miracle happens to somebody else mm mm-hmm. But I didn't hear the other part, like like you just said, where, how do you Don't leave it? after the miracle. Don't leave after the miracle happens. And then that's what I did. I left after <laughs> the miracle happens. And um, I ended up right back.
1: How long of not going to meetings did it take for you to pick up? Okay. And what did you pick up for the first time? Okay,
0: so it was four years of not going to meetings.
1: Wow. Well, so I always tell this to people because sometimes people are like, so if you don't go to meetings, you think you would relapse? Like, maybe not right away. It might take years. It might take months. But when you stop identifying as an addict, that self-talk that's helping you not use starts to diminish and diminish and diminish. Where eventually someone hands you a beer and you're not automatically like, oh, I don't drink because I'm in recovery. And it's like little things like that. Or a car accident. Like, there's so many things that can happen when you're not insured by the program.
0: And so... It was four years of not going to meetings, mm-hmm. and what eventually happened is, uh, maybe it was just a phase, a 20-year phase of shooting <laughs> heroin and going to jail. Or whatever. Yeah, you're, it was just you're over phase. it now. I'm over it now. I, I grew up. Look, you know, I've arrived. I'm a productive member of society. Were
1: people in meetings trying to get you to come back for a while?
0: Not really. See, another thing that happened, part of... I was living on Miami Beach then. I mm-hmm. moved, to, after I got married, I moved to the suburbs. So I moved up to, to Broward County. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have that same support system mm-hmm. up here that I had down there. I had some, I had some. Mm-hmm. And that's when my kids were born. And so we started hanging out with the other
1: parents parents,
0: yeah. in, you know, that, that had, had kids the same age that were in the program. And suddenly it became more about the kids, more about, all that kind of thing. And recovery gradually went on the back burner. And the other thing that happened was the people that I was surrounding myself with that were in the program were also going to meetings, at, you know, once a week and frequently. And suddenly you see this one that's not going to meetings at all, and they're okay, and this one's okay. Mm-hmm. And so somehow it seemed like it was okay to not do it anymore. people around me seemed to be staying clean without going to meetings. Mm-hmm. and so that just became that just became another form of denial. i guess became another form of me lying to myself. Mm-hmm. and so eventually picking up was going to the doctor, <clears throat> cold coding cough medicine seemed like a good idea
1: subconsciously did you know you're going there seeking codeine or was it kind of like you weren't sure
0: i probably knew i was going there seeking codeine Mm. whether i knew it subconsciously i knew that when he said codeine cough medicine that was a bad idea (laughs) i knew that was a bad idea Mm -hmm. and and so here's the rationalizing and justifying part so i Drank whatever I drank in you know, a quarter of a bottle, whatever. And I, I, I felt, you know, I felt high of the euphoria. And my life didn't blow up. I didn't drink the cough medicine. You didn't turn into a pumpkin. And wasn't out, you know. Okay, I drank it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so next week, I'll drink another piece. Bit. Mm-hmm. And then after a month or so, oh, wow, shit's almost gone. I was kind of nice. Just doing it once in a while, like normal people do.
1: Were you a doctor at this point?
0: I was a doctor at this point. Yeah. Wow.
1: What What were you doing with your doctorate?
0: Huh? I was. So, at, I was in private practice because doing regular stuff. Okay. As and a psychologist, I also was a partner in a rehab. Okay. Uh, so I was, in, I, was, I was in the. I was in the business. Mm-hmm. I ended up losing my share of the rehab because of my relapse.
1: Wow. What year was this?
0: This was. 2000-ish, 99,
1: 2000? Wow. Were they crushing it? Huh? They yeah, doing? yeah, they were crushing it. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, there, there was I The, rehab, the you know? rehab business in the 2000s was like...
0: Right, right, right. It was wide open. It
1: yeah. was, I couldn't even imagine what was happening then. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It was wide open. There was, you know, not a lot of competition like there is yeah. now, and insurance was a lot easier, yeah, so it was, you pro- know... Yeah, that's crazy. It, it was a very good business. Yeah, it was very very good. And that, And that was another thing. Another piece of my denial system mm-hmm. was I'm working in the field it's like I'm in a meeting all the time mm-hmm. I see what happens I see how these people come in all mm-hmm. messed up these people not me mm-hmm. you know finding a way to distance myself and rationalize that I'm kind of in a meeting even though I'm not and all that just mm-hmm. kind of all those kind of little you know the, we learned in the program here that You know, denial doesn't mean that I'm lying to you. That's called lying. Mm -hmm. Denial is I'm lying to myself and I don't know that I'm lying. Yeah. I believe it.
1: Yeah. A lot of times people work in treatment thinking that, well, this is like recovery to me because I get to help people. And uh, when I started working in treatment, I had like five years clean. I was working as a tech and my sponsor said, uh, he said, don't go working at that motherfucker thinking you're going to help people. (laughs) He said, um, he said, that's like working at a bar. (laughs) and i remember thinking like working at a bar i you know i really didn't think of it as like a negative thing but he said anytime you're surrounded by by more disease than recovery you're at a bar
0: that's a nice way to put it i like that
1: and i remember being like oh wow it's interesting he's like when the sick people outnumber the well people you're in a fucking bar
0: i like that that's very good i got a sponsor. i'm gonna tell that too
1: yeah and i was (laughs) like wow that's interesting you know Because I used to go there, and a lot of people that I worked with were like, oh, I don't go to meetings anymore. Yeah. I work here. And I would be like, oh, that's crazy. But to each their own. So, hang on. So you started with, okay, so what happened after that first month with the cough medicine?
0: So after the first month with the cough medicine, as fate would have it, um, I went to, I I had neck and back, you know, whatever. So I went to the doctor, (laughs) and... I went seeking meds, you know, mm-hmm. oh, you know. By the way, my back ached, my neck, whatever. And I was you know, hoping to get a prescription for Percodan. Mm-hmm. Well, this new thing was out; was just out. This thing called OxyContin. Wow! And he asked, "You, had,
1: you didn't know? How, you didn't know what it was?"
0: He asked me if I. He goes, "Oh, we got, I got this new thing. It's like Percodan, only you know, you take it It's time release. You only need one, whatever it is." Mm-hmm. I was like okay sounds good to me wow and
1: it makes me smile
0: and and um so i get the prescription bottle Mm -hmm. i'm kind of like this you know (laughs) looking forward to it and it says on the bottle do not
1: chew."
0: (laughs) guess what i did I chewed it. I chewed it.
1: Because if it says do not chew. You got to chew it.
0: I already know. Mm -hmm. I chew it because I'm going to feel it
1: That's like when it says do not uh, uh, take with alcohol. You're like, oh, you got to take it with alcohol.
0: So I said do not Mm -hmm. chew, so I chewed it. Wow. And that was, now the the cough medicine or whatever, you know, gave me a euphoria. Mm -hmm. But not like chewing that, that was like, oh, wow. Now I was, that feeling was back in the streets, you know, that was that feeling. And then that started the pill addiction. Hmm. And then that started the pill addiction. Well,
1: what, so that was when you started with the Oxycontin.
0: That's when I started with the Oxycontin. Wow. And I was, but it was oxys and heroin and crack and, you know, the the whatever whatever I could get. Mm-hmm. Oxys weren't as prevalent in, like, 99, 2000 as they were five, eight, five years later. Wow. You know, the, there were beginnings of pain Clinic clinics and i found a guy that i would send to mm-hmm. get them whatever and you know i did that but it was you know it was a i i couldn't get enough all the time to keep the habit going
1: gotcha what uh how long do you use for that time
0: so that time it was about a year
1: what did you lose in that year
0: so in that year I was in the process of losing my marriage, which I ended up losing a little bit afterwards. Mm-hmm. I didn't really lose anything material uh, you know um I lost the rehab, I lost my mm-hmm. partnership in the rehab um other than that, not much. I spent a lot of money um had some misadventures, some injuries, mm-hmm. whatever um I didn't really lose much.
1: Gotcha. You didn't, like, lose your license to practice? No, you, not yet. Okay. That's, that's <laughs> okay, okay. that's coming up later.
0: That's so, coming up later. Okay, so then you so, used for a year. Uh, about about losing a license. What finally, so during that year, I went in and out of detox a few times and just, you know, kept using, you know, didn't really even mm-hmm. stop, you know. Um, but then there was this guy who's a doctor in recovery that I still know him, who uh, who was you know like the, one of the attending physician at the rehab right, and there's a there's a whatever it's called physicians recovery resource network mm-hmm. whatever, and he said you got to report yourself or I'm going to report you. Yeah, I so said I'm not reporting myself. Yeah. And he said fine I'm reporting you. I said you can't do that you know HIPAA, com- yeah. confidentially. I was like you know, watch me,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> and he did he reported you. Well. They
0: reported me, yeah. And so that started them, those mm-hmm. people in the professional recovery network calling me and whatever and me trying to mm-hmm. you know get into a treatment center somewhere and okay, I'll come in next week, next month and mm-hmm. you know them chasing me and I'm kicked out of the house. Mm-hmm. I'm living in in motels and I'm just Doing whatever I had, you know, whatever I do until I get to the bitter end, and okay, got to go into treatment.
1: Gotcha. And then you were clean for how long?
0: I was clean for six years.
1: What were those six years like?
0: Those six years were, in a way, like the first six years, the first eleven years. Mm -hmm. I got, I got reconnected to the program. I got involved, you know, uh, doing doing service work Mm -hmm. and, you know, got my, the guy that's my, you know, my sponsor, my mentor today, did all, did all the stuff. Mm -hmm. But then in that process, the wreckage of, of my relapse, we tried to get the marriage back together, but I couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. It just didn't work. We tried to make it work. It just didn't work. There was just too much damage from, from Mm -hmm. that. Now, whether, that was the right marriage or not to begin with, there's a whole nother story. I kind of think it wasn't. I kinda think I got married for the wrong reasons or didn't know who I was or you know mm-hmm. whatever whatever cliche we want to use, but you know I think the seeds of the of that marriage's destruction were were sown long before that relapse, probably mm-hmm. when it was built. Mm-hmm. but that said, the marriage ended and and I started, you know, I started dating, and I kind of drifted away from the program and the stability a little bit, and started, you know, living life again. I'm normal. I was still young then. I had, I had, I had dark hair, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was enjoying being successful, being a professional with a nice car, with a house, and and dating and living normal life, and. My sponsor had pointed out to me that social acceptability isn't the same thing as recovery. And just because mm-hmm. I have all those trappings like I had before, dude. Hey, you had that before. Do we see a pattern here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, but it's different this time. Mm. And eventually, I don't even remember what the trigger was that time.
1: Did you stop going to meetings?
0: Stop going to meetings. This time for a year. Okay. This time a year, of not going to meetings. So same story, <laughs> different time frames. same... But but mm-hmm. the same thing. And again, using seemed like I could just control it and do it once in a while, and that wasn't what happened.
1: What was that relapse like?
0: That relapse was really bad. That was the one that I, that that I got I had a couple overdoses, and that was the one where you know I, they eventually like started proceedings to take away my license. That was the one where. Whatever, like semblance of a practice or whatever I had. I mean, I'll give myself some kind of credit. Once I started using, I stopped seeing patients. I I didn't want to cause more harm. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know what, I, I can't do this. I, I you know, give mm-hmm. myself a little credit. There was enough recovery, quote unquote, in me even when I was using to, you know, to have be able to establish that boundary for myself. But um, and. You know, there's a cliche that you pick up where you left off, or it gets worse, whatever. And if possible, it was worse than when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Maybe because I had ways and means, I had money, I was a little smarter maybe, you know. <laughs> I had a little more wisdom, mm-hmm. you know. Um, more resources. More resources. All, every way. More connections, you know. And so... I you know I, I was just able to so so early early <laughs> days of using the using usually was somewhat limited by how much I could get. This time and then the second time then when I relapsed, I was kind of trying to keep it together and I you
1: were limited by the social yeah by, you know, by where
0: I was at whatever you know and kind of got a little out of control and got back in control here this time, no limits. No limits. And I was able to not run out of drugs. Mm -hmm. I pretty much ran out of drugs for three years. I just didn't run out. I had as much as I wanted all the time. And so one of the things in 12-step programs, it talks about, uh, you know, the first first step talks about my life had become unmanageable. And so... our, the disease learns the language of recovery, and so the, so the disease told me, "Well, your life isn't going to be unmanageable because you're not going to run out of drugs. So that part of the equation is not mm-hmm. going to happen. So you're okay." And so, and somehow that made sense to me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But I was miserable. I was miserable because it's you know the merry-go-round and the roller coaster. And um, so, I, so so here's this part of the story, and so. It's about three years of that, and I remember thinking, I don't know how this is going to stop.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I know, you know, it's just going balls to the wall. I don't see how this is going to end. And I remember sitting in the shower one morning, you know, five, six in the morning, I'm finally crawling into the shower, and thinking, you know, the only way that's going to end is it going to end in handcuffs. I don't really... I'm not willing to go. I'm just I don't know. Within a week, I was uh, I I was arrested. Mm. I ended up going to prison. Wow! Uh, You didn't know that part of the story. No. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. How long? Uh, Six and a half years. You did six and a half years in prison. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I did six and a half years in prison.
1: So you're you're 14 years now. Six and a half years. Then we're in prison. We're in prison. Yeah. Wow. What was prison like? Was it fun? (laughs) <laughs> uh, no,
0: but it wasn't fun it wasn't fun and so in prison and again as fate would have it mm-hmm. in prison um it seemed like i had one cellmate after another that was fucking dealing drugs mm. i mean you hear the cliche oh there's more drugs in prison i don't know about more but there was pl- it was just <laughs>
1: But you're trapped in them. <laughs> right, yeah, right. I, I mean, mean, out here, you can walk away. Right. I mean, <laughs> I'm
0: living in a cell with a guy that's selling drugs. Wow. One after another. See, oh. Every, 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 I every had cellmate. one or two cellmates that weren't selling drugs, but they were just using constantly. <laughs> stealing this one, you know. Wow. You know, they are involved in crazy gang shit, mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Now, what I was able to do. I had been around long enough. I'd been exposed to 12-step programs long enough. There were meetings at the facility, so I went to meetings. Mm -hmm. I got a hold of some recovery literature, and I read the literature. Mm -hmm. I would run into people here and there in in prison who had been to 12-step programs, Mm -hmm. and we would kind of talk about recovery as best as we could with whatever limited resources we had. So I did the best I could to be in recovery in that environment. Um, and you know, there'd be like the occasional person that, okay, when you know, get out, you know, I would say, well, we're gonna go to meetings, whatever. And I remember when I was getting out, you know, you know, you, you never finish your sentence, you're out on some kind of probation, parole, whatever mm-hmm. it is. And them saying, oh man, you're gonna be back, whatever. You know, nobody can do it successfully and saying, for me, it's real clear if I go to meetings, if I do what I'm supposed to do, I'm not going to be back. Mm-hmm. if I don't, I will and it's really that simple and a little postscript to that. I've sponsored a, the guy that slept Wow. the guy that slept in the bed next to me
1: mm-hmm.
0: i I think he's using it again, mm-hmm. but you know. Full circle, come around, and I also sponsored another guy. I sp- I've sponsored two people that I was locked up with. Gotcha. O- o- over the course of my recovery. Mm-hmm. That's, that's That's what that was like.
1: Uh, wh- getting out, what was that
0: like? That was interesting, too. So there's this weird culture shock. Mm-hmm. Getting out of getting out of jail. First, there's a culture shock getting mm-hmm. into prison. It's a totally different subculture, different value system. The whole count time this that eat this time. The whole structure, all of it. The the danger. The kind of paranoia. Senses being heightened all the time and not even realizing it. You mm-hmm. know, you know, kind of on animal alert all the time. And so getting out was an adjustment. In the beginning, I remember, oh, wow, they're doing count now. Oh, it's time for chow. Things like that. Little things like, um, so in prison, when you go to take a shower, you take your shampoo out Mm -hmm. of your locker and your soap, and you put your little shower slides on, you take your towel, and if there's not... A shower available, you put your towel on the wall to indicate to show like you're you know your place in line, and suddenly I can go take a shower and I can leave my shampoo in the shower. <laughs> and so there was that whole thing. Another whole thing was all the culture I had missed, not fancy culture, it's like all the movies that came out, all the music that had come out when I went in, mm-hmm. the iPhone was just happening. When I came out everybody's copying and pasting with their finger mm-hmm. and you know doing this and all that stuff it was like I had, so there was a whole just catching up with technology was was, was another whole culture shock.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um what was your? You talked about you had a different spiritual path. Right. What was your spiritual path like?
0: Okay, so as I said, I grew up traditional Jewish, whatever. Mm-hmm. Not sure if I believed or not. Didn't believe. Thought I believed. Tried to believe. Whatever. And when I came back from my relapse, the first relapse, one of the things that I read somewhere, and 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 you know, and then doing you know the program work, whatever, is that. We have to be honest about the nature of our beliefs. Mm. and
1: Yeah, like whatever they are. If you don't believe in God, you better say you
0: don't believe right. in God. Right. I have to know. be honest about the nature of my beliefs <clears throat> to myself and in the, and to other people, whatever, but certainly to myself. Mm-hmm. And so when I read that, I said, you know what? I was trying to force myself to believe something I didn't believe in. Okay, so I know what I don't believe in. What? Well, then... Is a, there's, a, there's a spiritual aspect to this program, whatever that means. So I got to figure that out. What's mm-hmm. that all about? And so I remembered and I was...
1: You think doing- those past years you weren't really sure what you believed in? Or you didn't believe in God like you thought you did?
0: I kind of tried to believe in God and but it was
1: like a secondary
0: thing it you was know, like you know kind of say a prayer or whatever you know gotcha maybe I kind of went through the motions of it but I didn't really believe it I didn't really believe it I don't really know
1: I know for me that that uh I've been clean all these years and I it's like the it's it's something that has never wavered where I I believe okay you know so like and I think that a lot of people constantly relapse and then years go by and they come out and say, well, I never really believed in, and I'm not saying that you have to believe in God. Right. I'm saying that you have to believe in something with like 150%, you know? Like-
0: and, 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 and I'll get there. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you where I am and how I got there. Okay. So I knew I didn't believe that. I didn't believe in the traditional... Dualistic God. There's a person here. There's an mm-hmm. entity, a magic, you know, omnipotent, an, an omnipotent force that intervenes in one's life mm-hmm. to make things happen. I know I didn't believe that, and so I'm doing the step. It's twelve step program, folks. Mm-hmm. I'm doing the step that's involved with the God of your understanding, and I'm saying, okay, I have to be honest about my beliefs. I know I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. Then I remembered, as a little hippie before the bus, you know, the wheels fell off the bus. <laughs> I was into Eastern spirituality and read some Eastern spiritual books and kind of, oh, I kind of liked that. It kind of resonated with me. To maybe use an overused word, you know, kind of mm-hmm. resonate with me. I said, let me let me check that out. So I remember spending days in Borders Bookstore going in like the spirituality section, just reading all these books on Eastern spirituality, whatever, and that's what, and that's kind of where the path has taken me. And so it's taken me, you know, down lots of different offshoots of Eastern spirituality. Mm -hmm. You know, there's mindfulness, and there's Taoism, and there's Buddhism, and there's different eclectic, parts to you know to all of them and then within each of them there's different kind of subsections you know mm-hmm. like in, like in most things you know um and i've come to find what's comfortable for me and it's a eastern flavored buddhist kind of s- spiritual philosophy mm-hmm. and so it's got nothing to do with an external being
1: but it's- which people think this is like like a lot of people think like if you don't believe in an external being it's not like you don't have a real spiritual belief but it's like buddhism is based on it like correct me if i'm wrong but like they don't worship anything but if they did it they would just worship principles
0: yeah and then that's exactly right and i'm probably going to be butchering this a little bit but just to kind of oversimplify it so in In the uh, Buddhist sutras, the Buddhist, you know, books, whatever, you know, there's different tales of, you know, people talking to Buddha and, like, asking him, like, oh, um, is there this, whatever, like, the cosmic theory of the day was, you know, there was God, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. was God, was the world created on the back of a tortoise or whatever it was, or (laughs) the spirit, whatever it was. And basically, his answer to boil it down was, it doesn't fucking matter, Mm-hmm. His answer was, these are the principles. He had eight <sighs> principles. These are the principles mm-hmm. that you follow, and you will relieve yourself from suffering. And the reason you want to relieve yourself from suffering really is to help relieve others from suffering. Mm-hmm. And the whole goal is compassion and kindness mm-hmm. and relief of suffering. And
1: it's kind of like 12-step related because it's like, once you become enlightened, your duty in life is to enlighten others. Right,
0: right. It's just the same thing. I mean, and so it was such an easy fit. It, it's not like a hard fit from, hmm, how does a 12 step program in Buddhism, recent, you know, how, how do I reconcile that? It's the same fucking thing. Mm-hmm. And so they
1: complement each other.
0: It's become that that's just sort of the way I look at it. And I read an interesting book recently about it's called Why Buddhism is True mm. and it looks at Buddhism from a psycho-evolutionary point of view. I'm not going to go into those details but ideas about the self, ideas about... um compassion and kindness and reciprocal altruism and all those kinds of things that are innate in humans and empathy, as well as the animal part of humans, the addiction mm-hmm. part of humans. And so that book led me down another path of, uh, of exploring psychoevolutionary human traits and, and principles and all that kind of stuff. And so this path has taken me down all these different, you know, evolution and anthropology and archaeology and kind of comparative studies of religion. And what I've found is what my personal belief is that whether you take Jesus, Buddha, the guy, you know, Bill W. who invented the AA program or whichever guy you want, whichever Mother Teresa, I don't care, mm-hmm. whoever it is, What I think is that each of them had an awakening, had a realization that was life-changing for them, Mm -hmm. and saw that this realization that they had was a message they could carry to other people. And so they had to frame that within the context of the society and the culture they were in. They couldn't frame it any other way because they had no other frame of reference to frame it in. Mm -hmm. so buddhism has a lot of stuff to do with reincarnation and all that why it was an agrarian society the whole idea of uh, of cycle rebirth planting replanting and all that was ingrained in the culture and the religion and you know everything was about cycles and so that was how it was framed Mm -hmm. and within that context people came up with Whatever the rituals that worked for them, oh, this one prayed, this mm-hmm. one did this, this one meditated, this one went to 90 meetings, 90 days, it doesn't really matter. These are the rituals that I perform that worked for me. Try them, they might work for you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that Buddha says, and again, it's a lot like what we hear in 12-step programs, is that this is what worked for me. I don't know if it's going to work for you. Try it. Mm-hmm. See if it works. If it doesn't work, make it work. Find a way to make it work. So it's just a lot of, you know, correspondence with it now buddhism has within it lots of depending on how um structured you want to get Mm -hmm. lots of things i don't believe in you know reincarnation a lot of those things i i don't believe that Mm -hmm. and so there's a whole subset of kind of like buddhism without belief some more secularized spiritual buddhism Mm -hmm. without some of the magic stuff without some of the Stuff that's the outgrowth of the culture that he was in.
1: So I don't, I don't know if I necessarily believe in um, uh, reincarnation, but I do believe in like the message of like in Buddhist they believe that like to be a human is like the highest form that you could ever reincarnated as. Okay. And that you must have done something so great in your past life to have earned that. And that it's so rare that you shouldn't take it for granted, so I might not believe in you know was in the literal in the literal sense of like I used to be a frog and I did <laughs> some amazing work and now I'm a human, but it is interesting to think that like you could have been anything and that this is so rare to be had born in human at the highest level of you know whatever
0: you got you think of it metaphorically it's all metaphor mm-hmm. you know and so. Being human, our humanness, our humanity, is a gift. It's the Mm -hmm. highest form, you know. um, If you you know compare the life of a human to the life of a termite, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a lot different, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, with that precious gift of being human and and self consciousness and self awareness that human beings have, that as far as we know other critters don't have Um, maybe does a porpoise have it i don't know you know so with with that gift exactly there's a a certain Mm -hmm. nobility to it and the the preciousness of it yeah goes by a lot of people and you know a lot of people say oh i'm grateful that i was an addict you know blah 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 i have to say that's my story I went through a lot of what I went through, you know, prison, and I put my family through a lot of shit and people, and I'm deeply sorry about that, truly. But on a personal level, I don't know that I would have, how I would have reached this level of inner peace and joy and sense of meaning, you know, 12-step talks about Mm -hmm. a sense of meaning in our lives and all that kind of stuff, and that... Whatever our spiritual paths, however they may differ, believing in a more traditional God or believing in no God or an Eastern philosophy of spirituality, one thing that they all have in common, this awakening that we get, is a sense of meaning and purpose in life. And, and I found that, and I found joy in that, and, and being able to appreciate... You know, 12-step programs talk a lot about gratitude. Mm-hmm. And gratitude... Yeah, especially early on. I was grateful for shit that I had, the car, the this, the that. But I've learned to cultivate gratitude as a state, not a trait related to external factors. It's just a state of being. I can be grateful with or without a partner, with or without whatever. I can just be grateful. Mm -hmm. I can be grateful even when the outside world isn't going my way. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't love it when the outside world is not going my way, but I can still be grateful mm-hmm. with that. And so, having been able to get to this level of comfort, I mean, another thing that Buddhism says is, really, at the end of the day, it's not that complicated, we all want to be happy. Mm-hmm. We all want to be happy. You, you know, and to be able to get to, and we, and, part of what makes us happy is to make other people happy, mm-hmm. you know, to be compassionate. There's like the great paradox in that. Mm-hmm. Can't keep what you have unless you give it away. <clears throat> and so to be able to have achieved this, I don't know that I would have gotten here with, w- without having been in a 12 step program. So mm-hmm. without what, you know, what I went through now, you don't have to go through what I went through, but you know, it, it's certainly worth it. And I'm, I've got a, a quick little story. Um, about just helping people in Mm -hmm. general um and this is not to toot my own horn but but more to illustrate how the program reverberates in people's lives now I won't talk about the people's lives that I may have touched within you know twelve step program, mm-hmm. but I also do some other things now. And one of the things I do, without going into details, you know, I'm a options trader, whatever it is, and I've achieved a certain level of success at it, and I'm pretty fucking good at it. And so I've begin I've begun to mentor people, and you know, I was talking to a guy today. You know, dude, I'm feeding my family because of what you're teaching me, mm. and. Just like they teach us in the program, I'm willing to work with you as hard as you're willing to work. I'm willing to put in the hours with you. This, you know, one guy I'm working. you know, we put three, four, five, six hours in a day, we trade together side by side, like on a meeting, side by side. Mm-hmm. You know? And people, you know, contact me all the time. Well, thank you so much for this, thank you so much. And I do that freely. You know the the write up that one of the guys I, I I do like a blog we'll call it whatever the write up mm-hmm. that one of the guys that owns this service did that he did in introducing me to the community whatever was that he noticed me wherever in like cyberspace you know mm-hmm. social media whatever and he noticed me always being willing to take the time to share my experience to help people that warmed my heart because that's what the program teaches us. Mm-hmm. And that's what kind of at the end of the day, and this is getting closer to the end of the day than you are. That's what you know life is about, and so that's kind of my story.
1: I love it. Hey, I want to thank you for coming to the podcast. Thank you for. I appreciate you, and appreciate uh, you too. hell does have an exit. So thanks for sharing your experience, strength, and hope.